you got a Bible, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Let's do this. Acts chapter 2. If you're joining us from home, just grab your Bible. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 uh, through 41. It's a, a sermon that Peter preaches. Uh, Acts chapter 2, 14 through 41. I want to read the whole thing, then we'll pray, then we'll get into it. Deal? That was a real question. Deal? Thank you, Dick Mallory. Somebody's giving me something. Then Peter stepped forward with the other 11 apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that Yahweh is always before me. No, I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers and sisters, think about this. You can be sure the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself for he died and was buried and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand, until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet." So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's word pierced their hearts. 
And they said to him and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed Peter, what Peter had said were baptized and added to the church, about 3,000 in all. Let's pray. Lord God, would your words today pierce our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you do more than just illumine and help us to see? Would you do more than just open our ears that we may hear? But would you use the word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which pierces marrow and flesh to get to us today? God, whether we're scrolling by in just this moment, whether we're here in this place hungry for you, would you come in Jesus' name? Amen. Peter's heart raced as he climbed the steps of the outer court in the Jerusalem temple. Ahead of him, through the beautiful gate, through the women's courts, Peter could see the temple, which had just an hour or two ago become obsolete as wind and fire swept into the upper room where he and his brothers and sisters had been gathering. Behind him, Peter could feel thousands of eyes piercing into his back. Because as the wind had rushed in, as the fire crackled above their heads, as they praised and prayed in languages they had never known or spoken before, the men and women of Jerusalem had come running. The streets were already bursting to the seams with pilgrims who had come to Zion for the festival of Pentecost. People from all over the known world, from every nation under heaven, had heard of King Jesus through this surprising ability to speak in a foreign language. The men, the women, the children, the gray-haired, even the slaves had received an ability to speak in strange languages. And as they did, as they moved through the crowds of Romans and Parthians, Medes, Arabs, Cretan, Pamphylians, they found themselves carried on a sea of humanity to the steps of the Jerusalem temple. When they arrived, they turned to find a huge crowd gathered, numbering at least 3,000. And they all cried out, what can this mean? They wanted to know what was happening. They wanted to know what God had done in their midst. Peter and the others found themselves at the bottom of the steps, ahead of them, the beautiful gate at, at the eastern side of the temple, and Peter felt someone tap him on the shoulder. He turned, and John, the disciple Jesus loved, he, he grabbed Peter by the shoulders, and he pulled him close and said in his ear, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The hair on the back of Peter's neck stood up. It was the words that Jesus had said to him, designating him first of the twelve. 
John looked him in the eye, and Peter swallowed hard. He climbed steps. His feet felt like lead. He turned the eleven standing on, either, on the sides of him, and he saw the thousands looking at him, eager to hear of this Jesus. He took a step forward. He opened his mouth. He said, listen carefully, men of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this, that the, the people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. He paused, wondering. And then a passage spoken first by the prophet Joel flashed into his mind, a passage he had memorized, sitting on the Sea of Galilee with his grandfather. He cried out, no, what you see here was predicted long ago. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on slaves, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. I will cause wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of Yahweh arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2, verses 14 through 41, is one of the first sermons ever preached by the apostles after the resurrection of Jesus. I say one of the first because Mary was really given the first, wasn't she? When she ran to the, ran to the other disciples and said, what, I have seen the Lord. Peter stands up to preach on that Pentecost, and the sermon Peter preaches, it takes only a couple of minutes to read. It was surely boiled down and summarized by Luke, but it's a work of rhetorical genius. The beginning and the end act as bookends. He explicitly and implicitly references Scripture throughout. And as Peter preaches on that Pentecost, Luke says, excuse me, Luke says, they were cut to the heart, his listeners. And Peter begins his sermon with a defense. As he and his friends speak in unknown languages, it's not because they're drunk. He says it's 9 a.m. is way too early for that. I imagine somebody in the back of the crowd yelled out, but it's 5 o'clock somewhere. (laughs) No, they're not drunk. It's The promises of God of old coming to fulfillment in their midst. Peter was a good Jewish man raised in a good Jewish home. By the time he was 13, he had entire sections of the Old Testament memorized. It's no surprise that as he steps forward to preach, what flows from him are the scriptures he learned as a boy. It's no surprise that these ancient words are suddenly finding new meaning, their ultimate meaning, in the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Here's what Peter wants his hearers to know. The coming of the Holy Spirit, attested to by signs and wonders, signs and wonders that they see there in their midst. This is a sign that God's promises of old are coming true, that what God had said to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, all of these words were finally coming to pass. Peter is speaking to Jews 
who have traveled from all of the nations under heaven to Pentecost, uh, to, to Jerusalem for this feast of Pentecost. And the idea that this Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises would have been a surprise for many and even difficult to believe for a few. All that God had promised his people seems like it's gone really off the rails. Starting in 586 BC with the deportation to Babylon and following shortly on that, uh, the Roman occupation. Peter's ancestors had been promised a land flowing with milk and honey. They had been promised a king of righteousness and justice. And what they got was Caesar after Caesar, Roman governor after Roman governor, oppression, tyranny, injustice. Other Jews dealt with their disappointment in a variety of ways. Some took up the sword and sought for a day when the Jewish people would overthrow their Roman overlords. That actually happened starting in A.D. 60. The temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. Uh, Simon, one of the twelve, was a zealot, a terrorist, just like this. Others put themselves in the pocket of their Roman government. They sought to appease them. Matthew had become a tax collector for just this reason. Still others, the Sadducees and other religious sects, uh, decided that the promises of God were metaphor and whimsy, not to be taken literally, because those promises were written for an ancient time. Sound familiar? Others, others still insisted on the strictest obedience, works of the law, that if by righteousness and, and, and strict adherence to food and circumcision, all these laws, maybe that would accelerate the arrival of the day of the Lord. But Peter says to these people, gathered before him, that all of these foreign languages on the tongues of Galileans of men and women, of young and old, of slave and free, all of this happening, by the way, weeks after the sun had turned dark on Good Friday. Did you notice that, that Joel said that? Joel said the sky will turn to black. All of this is a sign that the restoration of Israel was finally here. That God would finally, as he promised to Abraham, bless all of the nations of the earth through them. That a new and better Passover had come that a king and Messiah had come forth from the line of David, and it was all happening through this Jesus of Nazareth who they killed. Look at chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus, the Nazarene, by doing power miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you all know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. Can somebody say amen? Thank you. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests secure. 
For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the path of life and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. The miracles that Jesus performed, miracles over, the, over nature, over death, over sickness, over the demonic, they were proof that Jesus was the chosen one, that Jesus was unique, but Jesus' brother, Jewish brothers and sisters did the unthinkable. They took the chosen one, their Messiah, and they put him to death using covenant outsiders, Gentiles, using covenant outsiders as their patsy. And amazingly, Peter says, all of this was planned. Peter says God knew this would happen, that God had a prearranged plan that was carried out. Now, does this, the, does this remove the guilt of those who put Jesus to death? Of course not. Does God waste nothing? Can God bring his purposes to fulfillment even through the midst of the worst of what humanity has to offer? Of course So Peter quotes a psalm of David, which we now call Psalm 16. Did David know he was speaking of Jesus when all those centuries ago he put pen to paper? Not quite. And yet the Holy Spirit so inspired David's words so that as he wrote them, when Jesus arrived, they suddenly made sense. Three times... In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, three times, he explicitly quotes Scripture. Uh, Joel 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. Psalm 110 becomes really important in the life of the early church. Uh, Implicitly, he's quoting a lot of the book of Ezekiel and the book of Isaiah. But three times he quotes these passages, and what Peter is discovering is what the early Christians are discovering. Early Christians, whose, by the way, whose Bible was uh, the Old Testament— You know, that part that we just teach our kids and tell everybody to be nice with, that part. The part with the blood and the circumcision and the murder, that part, yeah. The R-rated part of the Bible that we've dumbed down for kids' Sunday school purposes. Uh, He's saying that the Bible is one long story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That the Bible has always been about Jesus And that now in his life and death and resurrection and ascension, all of these things that they had been promised were coming to pass. This is why Jesus says, they testify about me. The story that Peter and his ancestors had been living for generations, who had passed down from generation to generation, it was a story about Jesus. It had reached its end in him. Um, We we watch a lot of murder mystery shows. Um, We watch one called Midsummer Murders. Uh, which is a PBS show. It takes place in this quiet little English hamlet where people are dying left and right, uh, which would make you think people would leave, right? Like, is the view of the river really worth, like, such a high per capita murder rate? I don't know. Um, And the reason I like this show is, you know, the story goes along, and, you know, someone fancy and British, you find out, like, the maid does it. Like, they put the poison in the tea, and they hid the body, and then they did... Uh, and, and, and I like that because it flashes back, right? At the end of Midsummer's Murder, there's, there's a flashback that kind of shows you how it happened all along. That, that's what's happening for Peter right now. That's what he's doing with the Bible. He's flashing back to all of the Old Testament and showing, look, here's how this was all about Jesus this whole time. Um, here's a better, here's I think a better, though nerdier illustration. Um, uh, in Star Wars, uh, 
Everybody kind of looks at each other. Okay, here he goes again. Um, my dad showed me Star Wars A New Hope on this, this antique thing. It's called a VHS. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those. They're, they were made back in the 1900s. Um, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and so my dad puts in this VHS one Saturday, and across the stream comes the words, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And I mean, I was hooked. I've got boxes of Star Wars stuff in the basement for Jack. Uh, when I was in middle school, the prequel trilogy came out. I thought they were great. Um, then, you know, it was announced a few years ago, they're going to do this new trilogy now. And I was, I'm in. Listen, there's like hoity-toity Star Wars people. I don't understand that. I'm just in it to win it. I love it. Um, but there's this interesting thing. The last movie came out in December, you know, and um, there's this debate online whether the main character in this trilogy, her name is Rey, does Rey bring the Skywalker saga to its fulfillment? Does she take the whole story and bring it together and end it or not? And that debate is, not, is kind of what they're figuring out here in the early church. They're, they're wrestling through all of these texts and coming to realize that Jesus really does bring the whole story of Scripture to its proper end. That all of the Bible was about Jesus. That all of their believing and hoping uh, in Israel was about Jesus, which is why at Christmas we sing the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. I hate to break it to you, that's not a song about you. That's a song that's a, about a long story that God has been telling that reaches its high point in Jesus. This is why Peter goes on in verses 29 to 31 to kind of talk about Psalm 16. No, you know, David couldn't really have been speaking about himself, but he was given a measure of insight. And then he continues in verses 32 through 36. He says, you know, God raised Jesus from the dead and we're witnesses of this. The we are, you know, the 11 that are standing on either side of him. Now he is exalted to the place of honor at God's right hand. When somebody asked me this a little while ago, when it says that Jesus is at God's right hand, it's at the place of his rule and reign and a place of honor, right? Because also in Midsummer Murders it's, and Downton Abbey, who sits at your right hand is important, Right? And the Father, as he has promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, and this is Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. Peter makes a stunning claim. God raised Jesus from the dead. And there are two witnesses in the courtroom with him. First, the twelve, who saw the resurrected Jesus and attended his 40-day intensive on the kingdom of God. But there's another witness in the courtroom. And the witness is these 3,000 people gathered in front of Jesus who have heard these languages, who saw, some of them saw the clouds grow dark on Good Friday. They too are witnesses that Jesus was unique, that Jesus rose again. And just to nerd out on Greco-Roman culture, it would have never occurred to anybody that the claim that Peter was making was that it was like a spiritual resurrection. There's one kind of resurrection in the Greco-Roman world, bodily or nothing. 
So against Marcus Borg, who says Jesus didn't really have to rise again for us to, you know, have the spirit of Jesus with us. I don't know what that means. It's bodily. Jesus reigns and rules, he says, in a living way through the Holy Spirit who has worked these miracles in their midst. And so Peter says, let everyone in Israel know. Some of your translations say, let the whole house of Israel, that's Ezekiel language, let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord, well, that's dangerous because there's only one Lord. His name is Yahweh. We don't give his name out to anybody else. Lord and Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one, the one that you have been waiting for this whole time. And as Peter makes this cry, and his words echo through the streets of Jerusalem, he can't help but wonder, do they see the irony that the hopes and fears of all the years that were met in Jesus, they killed off. They used covenant outsiders to do it. And as his words echo, there's silence. You could hear a pin drop. And then someone from the middle of the crowd yells out, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says, Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. Be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit, this promise is for you and your children. Hi, this is why we do infant baptism. And for all who are far off, Jew and Gentile alike, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is proof that Luke is summarizing. Um, Anybody want a quick lesson in like Greco-Roman historiography and why that's okay? No? Oh, okay, we'll talk about it later. But perfectly acceptable for Luke to kind of summarize a couple hours of preaching into this. Luke goes on to note, 3,000 people were baptized right there in the temple courts. There, uh, archaeologists have found cisterns, big, huge water containers. There were at least 12. 12 cisterns, 12 apostles. Isn't that convenient? 3,000 people. I mean, boom, boom, just dunking left and right. While all of, the, while all of like Jerusalem watches on. I think what Peter calls for in these verses is so interesting. He first calls for repentance. Repent in the Greek, it's this word metanoia, it means change your mind. But in this instance, N.T. Wright says, like, the word almost means, like, turn back. Come back, because you've gone so far down this road of rejecting the promises of God, now killing his Messiah. You are headed down a bad road, and so Peter's calls, like, turn back. Come back to God. Do an about face of heart and life, and he connects the expression of repentance with baptism. When we go down into the water and when we come out, that repentance, that casting off of the old and living into the new is so powerfully symbolized. And notice he, he brings together repentance, he brings together baptism and forgiveness. Not quite to say, do you know, here's what I like about Peter. He doesn't quite say. That baptism is what gets you God's forgiveness, but boy, does he like come right up to it, doesn't he? 
because baptism and forgiveness are just so powerfully interlinked. He likes to dance right up on that line and say that even baptism is such a powerful symbol of our forgiveness as our sins are washed away, as we come out into new life with Christ. Peter says that when you put your faith in Jesus, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not reserved for a few. In the Old Covenant, that's how it worked. Only the elect few, the the kings, the priests, sometimes someone who was making a certain thing for the temple, they got the Holy Spirit, but everybody gets it. Holy Spirit's democratized. And then he makes this other interesting thing that, that they're added to the church. You see that? They are folded into the family of Jesus. The verses that follow this, we're actually going to skip verses 42 through 47, and that's going to be a part of our vision series for the month of September. But when you read those verses about the family of Jesus, that they held everything in common, awe and wonder was upon them as people did miracles. American Christianity has for a long time relied on calling people to make a decision. And the guys that were in my theology club over the summer like, see, let's see if I get this right, okay? It was relying on making a decision. Check the box, walk the aisle, raise your hand, and you can go to heaven after you die. Do you notice something curious in this passage? Jesus, uh, Peter does not say, well, neither does Jesus because Jesus isn't a character in this chapter, but Peter doesn't say, hey guys, if you raise your hand and put your faith in this, you can go to heaven after you die and see your loved ones forever. Doesn't that sound fun? And I'm not saying, by the way, that if you were at a Billy Graham crusade or you walked the aisle or raised your hand, you checked a box that you're not a Christian. I'm just kind of pointing out, like, there does seem to be a little bit of a difference between the story that the apostles tell and the story that the American church tells. And that's because we've built a decision culture. Check the box. Once saved, always saved. I can continue living my life as if nothing ever mattered again as long as I, you know, come to church on Christmas and Easter about once a month and we're good to go. See, what Peter is calling them into is a discipleship culture. Lay down your life for this story. The word believe here has the force of allegiance and fealty and loyalty to a new king. Peter's sermon isn't about a decision that you make in the heat of a moment and then ignore for the rest of your life until a loved one gets really sick. Or, I mean, you can do that because God is gracious, but we're settling for so little. We're settling for so little because the truth is a decision can fit into my life without much trouble. I can decide to be a Christian without having to evaluate my politics, without having to evaluate my money, without having to think about how does my faith and my career intersect? How does my family culture work? That's why we like decision-making, but Jesus and his people call for discipleship, for submersion, to be baptized into a story, a true story that God has been telling for centuries, a story that has reached its height in Jesus. And it is a story that, in the words of the, of the hymn, demands my soul, my life, my all. Tim Mackey calls Acts 1 through 8, this section of the book, a tale of two temples. A tale of two temples. Here, the new temple of Jesus, all those who have called on the name of the Lord to be saved, filled with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. There they gather on the steps of the old temple, which is now obsolete. 
And now this new temple and the guardians of that temple spend the rest of the book in conflict and in tension with one another. And as those 3,000 people are baptized, you better believe that the old guard is watching. You better believe that they are filled with discomfort, which is why in Acts 4, Peter and John are thrown into prison. In Acts 5, the apostles are flogged. In Acts 6, a man named Stephen is arrested. And in Acts 8, his cold, bleeding body lies on the ground with Saul of Tarsus standing over it. It's a conflict. It's a fight. And there is a conflict between the story that Peter tells and the story that his hearers have been telling. They've tried to do the, let's metaphorize it, metaphoricalize it, and make it like, oh, just mean this, that, and the other. Or they, they've, let's go to war, or let's, let's do rigid obedience. There's all these stories crying out for their attendance. In the early, early days of the Christian world, there were so many stories crying out for the attention, the, the secrecy and the pleasures of paganism, putting yourselves in the pockets of the Romans, fighting against the Romans, And just as then, when Peter calls them to a different story, there is a different story that Jesus is trying to call you into today. There's a different kind of story. Because all sorts of stories are vying for your attention. The story of a successful retirement. The story of a perfect American family. The story of a vibrant career. The story of health or wealth or beauty. The story of nationalism, of patriotism, of progressivism, of liberalism, of libertarianism, of conservatism. The story of Trump, the story of Joe, the story of conspiracy, the story of science. The story of wear masks, the story of don't wear masks. The story of Black Lives Matter, the story of Blue Lives Matter. The story of CNN, the story of Fox News. The story of speak your truth, the story of sexual liberation, the story of individualism, the story of family, the story of your past and what's been done to you and what you've done and why you can never be good enough. And all of these stories are vying for your attention. Do you know what Peter gets up and does? He doesn't stand up and persuade. He doesn't beg. He proclaims. He proclaims. He says, this is it. This is the true story. This is the real story. This is the story that all other stories must bow to. Will you give your allegiance to this story My friends, what story have you been living? What story have you been living? Here's what's sneaky. What story have you been living under the name of being a Christian that is against the grain of the way of Jesus? Seth's going to come lead us in some response time. The band will lead us and then we'll receive communion together. I'm just going to pray uh, for us together for a moment and then and kind of share um, just some things to be thinking about. Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you into this time and this place. Um, I just pray that you would highlight for each of us individually what it is that's keeping us from fully uh, giving our allegiance to Jesus today. And so I just pray, Father, over this time that you would just get our attention and that we would be so faithful to, to hear your voice and to do what you say. Amen. Um, I just, as, as Kyle was talking, I was thinking um, about, you know, Shrek says that we're like onions, we have layers. 
Um, and, the, and the reason I bring that up is because I think that sometimes God reveals a layer, and that requires more repentance. Um, and so for some of you listening, watching online, for some of you in this room, you maybe haven't ever repented in any way, shape, or form. And so I want to invite you um, to trust Jesus with, with your repentance, with the truth of who you are. Um, for those of you who have done that, maybe done that hundreds of times over your life, I want to invite you in this moment to really hear the Father's voice. What is it that he's bringing to your attention? What is it that's keeping you from being all in, from fully in right now? Um, because the reality is, as things get peeled away in our lives and our hearts, often new things are revealed that we weren't aware of were there before. And so I'm going to take a couple minutes uh, while the band will play before we take communion. And I just want to invite you to really examine your heart and your mind and, and really let the Father speak into that and highlight maybe some things or maybe just one thing that's going on. And then I want you uh, to invite you to repent of that and to really give that to him and say, Father, I see that, I name that, I repent of that, um, and I want to be all in. So we're going to take just a few moments and then we'll, we'll head into communion.